You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to a new episode of the Bandwagon Podcast, and today um, I'm joined by uh, Katia Kowalski, who's from uh, Volkface, and uh, we'll get into a little bit what that is, because it is a little bit of an unusual name, um, but we've kind of worked out the dynamics of, of, of how that kind of uh, happened, but uh, welcome Katia, I, I hope you're well. Thank you, uh, real pleasure to be here, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on today, Ricky. No, that's good, okay, so... From from the very uh, start, then, what is Voltface and and how did it come up with that name? Yeah, so it's um yeah, so it's uh Voltface, Voltfast, um Voltfast are. Well, I'll go into a bit of detail around like what we are, and then maybe the, I'll explain what uh, what the name kind of means. It's uh it's Latin, but um we're a non for profit advocacy group and a think tank. Um, and we've been around for about five years with the kind of aim ever since our inception around disrupting the narrative around current drug policy and particularly around kind of disrupting the narrative in the drug policy space in the UK. Um, so, I mean, our kind of mission is to uh, reduce the harms that drugs pose to individuals in society, um, but kind of a key, a key aim and value that we've held since kind of being formed as a kind of a quite a new think tank in the UK is to kind of continue to bring in new voices and new ideas and new arguments uh, into the drug policy sphere. Um, just because I think we see kind of the same arguments around drug policy resurfacing a lot. Um, so Voltfast has kind of come into this space as kind of a, a disruptor in both in a positive and collaborative way. Um, but the word Voltfast, um, I think it's French or Latin. And it basically means a total change of opinion, like a change of face, um, yeah. which I think is quite a, um, quite, a, quite a cool name, especially in the kind of cannabis advocacy and drug policy sphere. Um, but yeah, that's a, that, that's a little bit about Voltfast. Uh, I, could, 
I could go on for quite a while just discussing around like the formation. Obviously, I haven't I haven't been around for ages. I've been in Vault Fast for kind of just under a year. Um, and yeah. it's been around for about five years. And your role now, what is that then, Katia? Um, so I'm uh, I'm head of strategy. Um, and basically, what that entails is I kind of um, I kind of help map out all the kind of projects and uh, proposals and uh, work streams that we've got aligned for um, kind of the coming the coming months around how we're going to kind of uh, strategize and interact with the sector. Obviously, Vault Fast kind of one of our um, one of our kind of unique selling points is that we engage kind of the media. Um, we engage the political sphere and we engage the industry. So we've got kind of a number of different groups that we work with and we're kind of the kind of central glue between all of them um, in the in the in the cannabis in the cannabis space. Yeah, I remember when I, I, I remember speaking to um, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. George Ryan. So uh, when I was setting up doing uh, my own conferences around the National Substance Misuse Conference, um, he said, oh, have you heard of these guys called <laughs> Voltface? I was like, no, I've never heard of them. And um, he goes, oh, you really need to engage with these guys because they, they were like, for me, they just they just came out of nowhere. I never, uh, you know, I, I was familiar with like Drug Scope and some of the other organizations that were, you know, popular Phoenix Futures, all the charities kind of uh, providers. Um, and then I just saw, I just saw this, this really excellent outfit that was able to kind of pick together intellectual conversations and start applying pressure in in the right table on the right tables. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did that journey start then? Um, uh, uh, to the best of your knowledge, in terms of to to come from nothing to something. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think I think that's a that's a great question, and um, yeah, I think it kind of links to what I was just saying around like um, the fact that the the drug policy space, um, I mean, obviously there's been drug policy reform going on for, for decades, ever since kind of the inception of the Misuse of Drugs Act and um, and the war 50, on drugs 50 in the years States. this year, 50 years. Yeah, exactly. There was um, the debate in the House of Commons uh, last week. Um, so I think I think a key reason why Volt Fast was kind of incepted and started was that we've, for 50 years, we've seen the kind of same arguments and the same ideas um, kind of being discussed in the drug policy sphere. You know, the fact that our drug policies are causing more harm than good. Um, they're causing harm to vulnerable populations, um, all very valid and true um, and true things. But I think a major problem that we have in the drug policy space, which is um, I think quite a unique thing for, po for policy and for drugs in general, is that it's a traditionally very left-wing liberal issue. Um, you know, left-wing people, liberal people don't want to see harm. They want to see, you know, people treated fairly and equally. And current drug policies are kind of a major, um, a major clash with those beliefs. Uh, whereas it's a lot more difficult to kind of bring on board social conservatives um, and kind of conservatives in general, uh, which is obviously a problem because you're kind of catering to a very quite a small demographic, especially in the UK, with uh, with a conservative government and uh, kind of generally just quite a conservative society. Um, so I think I think that's a major issue and roadblock to drug policy, and I think that's a key reason why it's been really difficult to see progress over the last fifty years. Um, just because I think advocates, even though they're doing the they're doing the right thing and they're they're saying the right things, it's not necessarily leading to change. 
Um, and I think that's kind of a, a key difference in what kind of VaultFast stands for. Um, and it's all about kind of trying to engage those groups and individuals and political parties um, and you know people of influence that have traditionally not been on board with drug policy reform um, and you know cannabis legalization and trying to you know frame things in a way that they can understand and get on board with um, and just trying to kind of shift the narrative in a way that um, that caters caters towards those views um, just because the kind of same arguments and kind of yeah discussing the things in the similar kind of echo chamber and just kind of catering to to people that already agree with you isn't necessarily something that um that will kind of lead to change really i mean like you you kind of hit on it in 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 some ways where you were talking about the the lenient uh, the leaning kind of the political kind of opinion that people have so you know this is more seen as a kind of left-wing issue in that way however there's a, a right uh, uh, a right um uh, conservative government in 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 power how do you then what are the, you know you were talking about your 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 uh, head of strategies what is the been what how what has been the main strategy of trying to bring people together regardless uh, of the kind of political affiliation to actually focus on the cause rather than the actual tribalism of the of the uh, political party yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a great question. And I think, especially, I think one of the keys is kind of looking at how, um, obviously in politics and especially now, you know, with, with Brexit and with COVID, we've seen kind of an increasingly polarized society where people have very much kind of labeled themselves as, you know, I'm a Remainer, I'm, you know, I'm pro-Brexit, I'm this, I'm that, I'm a, you know, an anti-masker, I'm a pro-masker. We, we see kind of this kind of large polarization in society generally. Um, and I think that's kind of, that's definitely an issue um, and something we see in, in drug policy reform as well. Um, I'd say, I think in terms of bringing on people and political parties that aren't necessarily in favor of cannabis legalization, it's really all about framing and kind of realizing that the framing that we've, we've kind of been, we've been doing for decades hasn't necessarily worked or it's, it's worked to a, to an extent, but kind of not to an extent that kind of tips tips people over the edge. Um, so I think framing things in a way that people understand and um, care about and want to get behind is key. Um, so kind of around economic framing, um, VoltFast has done quite a lot of work around the kind of economic opportunities and investment potential and kind of innovations that exist in the cannabis sphere. Um, and that's, you know, that's gone down well. Um, especially amongst uh, the Conservative Party and especially in the kind of post-Brexit, po post-COVID, hopefully soon world, um, that the kind of economic framing around that and the kind of potential that holds, uh, that's, I think that's a key way. Um, and also, I mean, we, um, we've recently released a report called Pleasant Lands, which is all about hemp reform and allowing for British farmers to extract CBD um, from hemp which uh, currently isn't allowed. Um, and I think that's kind of a key framing as well, kind of looking at cannabis and, you know, showing the fact that, you know, it, it is a recreational drug in some respects or in many respects, but you can look at it in different frames and see it as like a, a great agricultural crop that has loads of environmental um, and economic benefits and just seeing the entire sector as a real, real boom for the economy when, um, you know, the the whole country's looking for economic opportunities. Um, 
so yeah, I think it's all about kind of reframing the the debate and looking at these kind of new arguments that can, you know, get people thinking about cannabis in a in a different way, which is exactly what what we need really. Yeah, I think it's really important, and and, and thank you for kind of you know just starting um, to explain that a little bit. I think when people start talking about cannabis, they immediately start either thinking about you know smoking or definitely just started you know the stereotypes that they have in their head. But the, but cannabis has got many layers to that, and you know hemp. What you were just talking about the functionality of hemp and the history of hemp, um, you know, has been you know for centuries. Um, and then it's been cut, it, the the arguments have then been kind of mis, mis being misused. You you you've seen an explosion in terms of in different countries now of the whole CBD market. Interestingly, I had the Steve Roll, rolls in from Transform, and I asked him kind of the the, the the very question: Do you see the CBD market starting to, to becoming more popular in the UK? And how do we how does that start? Um, yeah, I mean, a, a, absolutely. I think the CBD market's kind of boomed in the last, I think, two or so years. I mean, I've been involved in the cannabis space for just under a year. Um, and kind of when I started to became, become interested in kind of uh, the therapeutic potential of, uh, of drugs and of cannabis, uh, I definitely noticed the CBD market kind of booming. And um, I mean, we've done quite a bit of work around this uh, with our New Leaf Opportunities campaign, which I, I touched on uh a little bit before around kind of highlighting the economic opportunities and I mean the CBD market's worth uh, worth a lot of money in the UK and it's it's increasing and we've got I, I forget what the exact statistics are but I think there's around like five million people that consume um, CBD to some extent in the UK like loads of people have tried it um, obviously it's um, it's not that it's not psychoactive because it is, but it doesn't have impairing effects. So it's not like THC that you know has that um, kind of traditional psychoactive high feeling. Um, but I think because it's obviously kind of seen as this kind of health and wellness product, um, it caters to a much larger population, um, which I think is can only really be a good thing. I think it's really kind of expanded the cannabis sector out to the, those populations that wouldn't traditionally think of, uh, of consuming cannabis. Like my my grandmother, who's 82 years old, um, she uses CBD oils to you know help her sleep and just for a variety of health benefits. Whereas like she she would never have thought of you know um, consuming cannabis recreationally that you know contains THC. So I think it's a really interesting um, field, and I think. Uh, I think maybe some people don't necessarily agree with the kind of commercialization and uh, growth of the CBD sector, but I think it's probably one of the most um, incredible things to happen to the cannabis sector in the UK, just because it's kind of normalizing cannabis so much. And, you know, it's, it's bringing on board those people that wouldn't necessarily um, think to consume cannabis and didn't think that cannabis has these kind of health and wellness products so i think it's doing a really good job of kind of reframing and reshaping you know what what cannabis looks and feels like uh, moving away from that kind of traditional stigmatized um you know this is a a, a dirty recreational drug um i think it's 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 helping that I mean, there is a bit of confusion around the kind of the CBD, the the, the CBD oil um, around at the moment. I'll, I'll get to it, but the like I even know it through my immediate friends and family that um, who have who've been who've used the the uh, uh, you know the drops of the CBD drops. What is the 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 legal position of that at the moment? So we know ca cannabis is 
is still kind of a, a, itself is a class B drug. Mm-hmm. Um, but how, or how does it, what are the ramifications of the CBD oil? Is there any difference in that? Yeah, yeah. So as of, um, so CBD has been legal for, I'm not sure how many years, um, I couldn't tell you that, but as of April 1st, um, CBD is now classed as a novel food product in the UK, um, which means basically for the last um, number of years up until April 1st of this year, uh, 2021, um, there was kind of a, a leeway period where uh, the Food Standards Association kind of told um, CBD companies and people that produce you know, CBD products, so oils, balms, tinctures, all that sort of stuff, that they've got um, until April 1st to get their novel food um, novel food regulation kind of stamp of approval to be able to continue selling um, selling their products uh, which puts the UK in a really interesting and kind of um, uh, a, a good position kind of uh, compared to the rest of Europe because there's kind of a clear path to compliance for for CBD companies um, and CBD is legal to, to be consumed I think the only form it's not legal in is in flour. Um, so you couldn't you couldn't uh, legally smoke um, or purchase like CBD flour to, to smoke in um in a joint. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a very complicated uh, complicated sphere that I don't necessarily completely understand the kind of ins and out ins and outs of around the kind of regulatory uh, law. But um, essentially, as of April first this year. Uh, the UK is kind of in a position to have strong regulatory clarity to allow for um, companies to kind of legally sell their products as long as they've got that stamp of approval that basically says, you know, this product is safe, this product contains um, this amount of CBD um, and, you know, it has to contain less than, I think, I'm not sure if it's less than 1% THC or less than kind of 0.2% THC, um, but that's kind of... Uh, that's a brief outline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think it's uh, definitely for one for further research in terms of looking at because I think from you know anecdotally when I've heard people who've tried to go down that road, they've got themselves into a right mess in terms of you know uh, you know with strength and and getting in, getting themselves in trouble. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll move swiftly. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know I know. I'm um, kind of before we kind of had that novel food stamp of regulation. Obviously, there were people were doing tests of like random products that were on the market, like yeah. literally being sold on high street corners. And, you know, they'd get samples back that had absolutely no THC or no, sorry, absolutely no CBD. And it's just like olive oil, or they'd get back a sample and it have THC, and absolutely no CBD. So yeah, there's, um, yeah, there, there was, there's definitely kind of a need to kind of clean up the market and make sure that, you know, products that are being sold actually have what they say they have in them. Cause that then kind of just limits um, limits well, I, everything. I, I think there's a there's a there's an argument for just the regulation with just within that market. You know, it's like a, a <laughs> like a, a absolutely double argument at that point. So, um, I mean, how do you? I, I mean, clearly that um, you know we've been talking more of a kind of strategy level and something that you know, uh, the the average person on the street may not you know have the, have a particular interest in at that point. One case that brought quite a lot of media attention was a few years back uh, with a young boy that was coming from over Canada um, who couldn't get the medication and Boltface was really um, heavily quite involved in, in that case, in, in the mm-hmm. case. Are you able to just share a little bit of details around, um, around that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll kind of share as much as I can just because yeah. I, I didn't, I wasn't kind of involved yeah. in Vault Fast back then. Sure. Um, but yeah, the case of uh, Billy Caldwell um, and obviously Charlotte Caldwell to um, to medical cannabis campaigners. Um, we uh, we kind of ran the campaign in 2018, or I say we Vault Fasted, um, which uh, which led to the legalization of, of medical cannabis in the UK. And obviously, this was kind of um, the, I mean, this was this was a major kind of step for for global media coverage and the most like hands down the most significant piece of legislation for cannabis reform um, in the UK. Um, and I think what it what it kind of highlights and shows is that um, something that, that can be quite frustrating in the drug policy sphere is that kind of evidence doesn't tend to convince everyone. Obviously, the evidence that, you know, um, medical cannabis should be legal and that recreational cannabis should be you know legal and regulated. Um, we can talk about evidence and bury the opposition and evidence for as long as we want, but um, it's not evidence that necessarily changes people's minds. It's the kind of the story and the media coverage and the angle that people take. Um, and obviously the story of Billy Caldwell was just um, hands down incredible and, you know, no, no government and, you know, the home office just couldn't, I don't, they couldn't sit idly by anymore. Um, and that kind of pressure as to, you know, this drug is single-handedly saving this boy's life and it being confiscated and taken away from him is, um, you know, is, is detrimental to his health. Um, so I think that was, that was kind of the really interesting and kind of unique angle to that story as to why, um, as to why it led to such kind of widespread uh, policy reform. But um, obviously three years on or almost three years on, the UK is in a position where not a whole lot has changed for medical cannabis, um, even though we've kind of, um, I think that's a really interesting angle as well as the fact that, you know, just because some things kind of changed on paper and has been legalized, um, the policy and how that's kind of implemented and how that works in practice um, uh, is it kind of a totally different thing. And that that's kind of why we're still not seeing a whole load of change for medical cannabis uh, in the UK currently. Have we? Has there been any other sort of, sort of similar cases uh, like like Billy in terms of in the, in the past uh, couple of years to try and uh, make uh, you know build up the argument? Because, uh, the reason why I say that was because there was a significant change in popular opinion, especially you know with uh, people in the, in the country that they could actually see the value of it. The anecdotally, people might know other ones, and you could just see the sway of opinion going down there. Have they? Absolutely. You know, we, we said like three years on, we haven't seen much change, but. Is there still kind of more cases that are building up that argument? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, I mean, you, you see it constantly in the kind of like cannabis media outlets. And I think now there's kind of been another wave of, you know, families and children kind of urging the government to do something about, uh, about medical cannabis access. Um, and yeah, I mean, you see there's similar cases like Billy all the time. And it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's quite heartbreaking, but also extremely powerful to kind of see the potential that the cannabis has. Um, I mean, I think the kind of major roadblock in, in the UK for cannabis reform right now is the fact that obviously it's legal and it can be prescribed by kind of specialist clinicians, but the issue, um, the issue patients and doctors have is the kind of the cost and the way you get treatment. Obviously it's, um, I think, I think three or four people have, I think it's about three, um, have been prescribed medical cannabis like on an NHS funded prescription. 
but otherwise everything else is kind of through the private sector and through private clinics, um, which obviously is um, kind of out of the question for, for a lot of families. And it's, um, it's what makes kind of funding and access to medical cannabis really difficult. It's just making money, isn't it? If you follow, if you follow where the money goes, that the answers the question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. And I think, I think it's not really fair to say that we haven't seen any change in the three years. I think that is kind of a stretch. Um, there's definitely been progress um, and there's going to continue to be progress. But I think obviously a key barrier to, um, to kind of opening up medical cannabis access in the UK is the kind of need for data. Um, the NHS kind of needs that data, needs to run those studies to, um, to, to get medical cannabis kind of prescribed on a, on a funded prescription. But I think there's, there's other ways um, and we're gonna see expansion um, and, and costs of medical cannabis being driven down by the kind of expanding industry. Um, obviously since I think it was March time this year, uh, the London Stock Exchange has begun to allow medical cannabis companies to legally list. Um, and that's, I mean, that's already kind of a major way of like just bringing in more money into the sector and the kind of more money and investment that comes in allows for the companies to expand and that allows, you know, more medicine, which means costs are lower and patients can access their medicine easier. Um, so I think there's, yeah, there's definitely still a roadblock because um, I think kind of the amount of prescriptions and conditions that medical cannabis can be prescribed for is, um, is, is enormous. I mean, obviously it's got such wide ranging effects. Most people could, you know, go into a clinic um, tomorrow and request a prescription for medical cannabis if they wanted to, if they're kind of willing to pay for the, um, for the medication. Um, but I think the kind of, obviously the, the kind of crux of it around cost and expanding access as much as possible. Um, it's, it's developing, but um, it's not, it's not necessarily quite there yet. So, um, you know, you're predominantly, a lot of your work is focused around cannabis. The, the, the field itself um, has had significant changes over the last, say, 10 years, 15 years. We've had novel psychoactive um, uh, substances come onto the scene. We've had, obviously, the traditional kind of drugs. What's been, like, the relationship between yourself as an organisation with some of those other, other drugs in terms of campaigning? Um, do, do you kind of mean in terms of like looking kind of beyond cannabis reform and into kind of other sectors of, yeah. or uh, other drugs? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. I think VoltFast has primarily focused around kind of um, around cannabis. We're kind of looking to and very interested in the psychedelic sector, obviously. Um, that's something that I'm really interested in as well. Um, I've got a background in psychology and kind of learning about the the, the mental health benefits and therapeutic potential that psychedelics have is like, is extremely interesting to me. And I think it's definitely kind of where the general drug policy sphere is moving kind of, um, kind of in parallel and combining with, uh, with, with cannabis. I'd say that other than psychedelic drugs, so kind of MDMA, ketamine, um, Mushrooms. LSD and, and yeah, and mushroom psilocybin. I'd say that kind of advancing the agenda for other drugs in terms of legalization and regulation, um, I don't think the UK is really there yet. Um, I don't think that means it won't ever be um, and that it's not a kind of a discussion to be had. But I think VaultFast has kind of focused on cannabis for the last five years, just simply because that's kind of where 
the conversations at. Like if we can get, um, uh, you know, politicians to understand and see the benefits of cannabis regulation and kind of get on get on board and get behind that and normalize that. I think it will follow with other drugs, um, particularly closely with psychedelics. Um, but I think in, in my view, I think advancing the agenda for cannabis reform is kind of primary to kind of let let the kind of just the destigmatization of drugs kind of happen um, kind of from there, if, if that makes sense, if that answers your question. Yeah, I mean, like, interesting you were talking about uh, psychedelics because you could see that movement in, like, America's uh, really ahead of us in terms of, like, the CBD market. Um, it's really ahead of it. It, 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 which is strange, really. You'd think the UK would be leading that way. Um, and now that, you know, now that they seem to kind of think, like, yeah, we've, we've won that battle, the, the, the psychedelics movement around uh, treating people with depression, for example, around mental health issues, is really picking up, uh, you know, a real big wave over there. Um, have you had any kind of personal involvement over that side? Because I know with some individuals, um, they might work that way or looked at some of the arguments that you could start the the, the conversations now. Um, so, I mean, I haven't, I haven't been directly involved in it. I've definitely been following it closely. I mean, there's been quite a lot of developments in the States in the last few months. I mean, um, I think some of the major ones are kind of the, I think Oregon's decriminalized all psych all drugs and like with a particular focus on psychedelics. Uh, Vancouver has done a similar thing with uh, decriminalizing um, and depenalizing psychedelic drugs. I think California is kind of having those discussions around legalizing, um, and I think Texas has just approved uh, a study uh, to look to see whether military veterans benefit from. Uh, from psychedelic therapy, which I think is incredible because Texas is just such a kind of conservative uh, Republican state. So like seeing that kind of movement is really positive. Um, and I mean, in the UK, I think we're not that far off of it, to be honest. I think the key, the key thing for psychedelic research now is just uh, clinical trials um, and kind of doing the research and getting that clinical evidence to then build it out. Um, and I think it's going to be a similar a similar kind of pathway for like with cannabis, uh, seeing kind of cannabis for medical uses being legalized. Um, and obviously that kind of expanding access, um, patients being able to access it. I think we're gonna see a similar kind of wave for psychedelics with it being, um, whether it's legalized for medical use or kind of we see it on a kind of a compassionate basis with clinics um, that will then kind of broaden out and, and normalize access a bit more. Um, but I definitely think we're kind of following in the in the U.S.'s footsteps. Obviously, you know, with a with a with a couple of years behind, we've got some catching up to do. Um, but I think that's kind of the I definitely see that as the kind of the next boom for 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 the drug policy sector. When you when you're having a conversation with somebody around sort of looking at drug policy policy reform, one of the biggest kind of areas that comes up for discussion is around crime. Have there been any kind of studies that actually will put the definitive argument to rest to say whether it would um, reduce crime or increase crime if, if it was regulated? Um, I think, I mean, I don't know any, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but uh, I think from from studies that have been done in the states and states that are that have legalized, um, and obviously Canada is kind of a main case study example. Um, there have been reductions in crime, um, and Obviously, I think a key thing to remember is that, you know, if we were to legalize cannabis tomorrow, 
we wouldn't kind of get rid of a black market like this. Um, I mean, illicit cannabis uh, trade and sales would, would continue, but it's kind of a gradual process in, in reducing it. I think obviously Canada legalized in end of 2018. And I think a few months ago, I read an article that um, the, the legal market has just outrun um, the illicit market. So now sales of the illegal, the legal market, sorry, um, are higher than the illicit one, which is um, an incredible milestone. And I think a lot of it around crime, particularly, and these kinds of like concrete pillars that we look to to see whether a policy has been effective is in around like is around kind of sensible proposals and doing things that are actually going to decrease people from going to the illegal market. So obviously having heavy regulation, but not overtly heavy regulation that makes people look at the legal market and not want to, you know, purchase cannabis from there because of it being, you know, over overly regulated and having such a low THC content that um, people will continue going to the illicit one. Um, so I, th I think it's kind of things like that, if that makes sense, around making sure that the policies we're proposing, the pr policies that go forward, um, actually do something to kind of change, um, change the way the kind of the cannabis market operates. Um, obviously, um, a key a key kind of pillar is the fact that obviously, if cannabis was, was to go legal, um, the amount of adolescents consuming cannabis would massively decrease. Um, we've seen that kind of in, uh, in the US and in Canada, which is kind of, I think, obviously, one of the main, um, main pillars of importance as to why, uh, why we should see regulation and legalization. Yeah, I mean, like this is just pure anecdotal. Um, but I, uh, a couple of a few years back, a couple of years back, I went to Canada, um, in Toronto, and uh, we were uh, in in a bar at that time, and a lot of the, the CBD pens were being used, and uh, I just started speaking to the the barman at the time. I was just saying, you know, like, um, you know, how, how's things, how how are things you know, when you see uh, people using pens? Has it caused any problems? And he goes it's actually calmed a lot of situations down. Um, and it reminded me of when I used to work in the police and with the custody block, um, you know, the custody sergeants there would say they would rather have people who are under the influence of cannabis because they knew you weren't going to get any trouble rather than sort of the alcohol. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, drunken disorderliness is a lot more of a kind of a, a crime and like um, threat than, you know, people just, uh, just consuming cannabis. They're a lot less kind of violent and aggressive. How do you, how then do you kind of uh, are bringing new people into this field? I always feel the substance misuse field, just in general itself, is kind of almost becoming stale. You're it, it's you're seeing the same faces, same organisations repeatedly all the time, and to try and get fresh blood into this, um, I, I do see the, or yourselves as one of the leading organisations who who've got an opportunity to bring that in. Is there any kind of key um, engagement tools that you use to bring people into the field? Yeah, so I think I think it's as I kind of said at the beginning. I think it's all about framing and kind of looking at the kind of um, the, the media themes that are currently going on and the kind of news cycle um, around us. What's kind of going on in in the world at the moment? What are the key issues and things that are being discussed and debated? And seeing kind of how cannabis reform can slot into that, um, and kind of how we can you know if if an MP's kind of come out and said, oh, they're supporting innovation or you know this kind of positive economic growth, um, looking to, you know, the agricultural sector to, uh, to, you know, bring back British farmers and bring back cash into the country. I think those, looking at those frames and seeing 
oh, okay, like cannabis can can fit into this, you know, through hemp reform or, you know, innovation is a key factor toward um, toward kind of expanding, um, e expanding the kind of economic opportunities of cannabis. So I think, um, yeah, I think looking towards, you know, those kind of media cycles um, and how we can kind of bring in people is a is kind of a key um, a key way that we do that. Um, yeah, I mean, this is kind of like a, a, almost a personal angle from when I been in the, in the field. There wasn't that much kind of people from different diversity, different backgrounds in in, in this. Um, how do you kind of work with those some of those hard to reach areas to put in your uh, putting your arguments across or raise the issue? Um, I mean, I think social media and kind of engaging with uh, with third sector organizations and making sure that um, I think I think a key kind of difficult but really important part of kind of working at Vault Fast is that as an organization, obviously we have you know values and ethos and kind of our philosophy of how we go about things. But I think some of the most um, kind of important ways of bringing about bringing about change and kind of engaging those hard to reach groups is making them kind of front and center without vault fast necessarily being front and center so finding someone that agrees with your um with your line of argumentation and kind of engaging them and making them kind of the, the front and center media focus or case study or kind of example of a narrative um is really important so it's not just kind of vault fast front and center preaching these ideas and stating you know the same the same things that we believe in but kind of engaging those groups that um might not necessarily be front and center, but can be. And then that kind of, you know, changes changes the angle um, and brings in kind of a new voice, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that there were that there was a talk of uh, of actually the UK having a cannabis referendum, that it was, it was that such a big, uh, big thing. If that kind of proposal went, went to you, what, what would you, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to kind of uh, speak on vault passes uh, behalf of just your, your own personal one. Do you yeah. think it's, you reckon it's that kind of monumental kind of decision that would be needed? I mean, we don't have as many referendums. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be quite interesting to see if, like, if we were to have a cannabis referendum, like, what would happen if we were to have that, you know, like, let's say tomorrow or next week. Um, I mean, I think we're a lot closer to um, it going through than we were, let's say, seven years ago. I forget when it was. I think it was about maybe two months ago, kind of end of April time, there was a YouGov poll. Um, I forget of how many people, obviously like quite a, like a representative sample and over 50% of people thought that cannabis should be legalized, which I think is quite incredible. I think it was around 56%. And when it was broken down by age bracket, the only age group that was more against uh, legalization and for legalization was the kind of 65 year 65 year olds and, and over which um, I think definitely says something it says that you know it shows that uh, the younger generations um, the middle-aged generations are kind of more pro uh, pro reform obviously the kind of people over 65 uh, it's going to be difficult and we'll probably never get them on board but you can see that there's a new generation of people that you know do do see it as you know we should we should legalize and regulate it so I mean if it came to a referendum I in my opinion I think it it, it would pass right now <laughs> yeah I mean it was I remember in um when I used to kind of like drug training and there used to be like kind of like Jackie Smith oh sorry Jackie Smith used to be uh, talking about you know the, the 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 cannabis regulation bit at that point knowing that 
it could almost be like a political suicide that if a government went out and said like we're going to legalize this um that they wouldn't do they wouldn't uh, really wouldn't have it on the political agenda to 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 you know at the top of the agenda to do it a referendum might be kind of a, a safe way of of bringing that in and not having any party affiliation to it that's the only reason why i think it could it could it, it may work work out that in in that thing do you think do you think that's fair yeah i think um i think i think that's a fair assumption i think i i think in the back of my mind bringing a referendum to the table in the back of my mind it would worry me that it would be you know kind of like new zealand it was you know it was so close but it it lost so i think the worry of like if the uk was to decide to do a referendum tomorrow that it would it would be such a close tie and it wouldn't go through and if you know 51% of people said no then the government would look at it and be like okay well you know clearly it's fine we don't have to legalize cannabis now um and we can just leave it and kind of brush it under the carpet um so i think there's obviously that kind of that risk you have to weigh up as to you know if um if it wasn't if it was to not pass um would that kind of do more damage than good um i think you kind of see an equal uh, equally not kind of related around um, decriminalizing cannabis. Obviously, there's a big discussion in the drug policy sphere of kind of legalizing, decriminalizing, whether you should decriminalize first to kind of uh, reduce the harm um, that, you know, cannabis poses to, to vulnerable uh, populations and then move towards the legal regulated model. Um, but I think a, a, an issue was would be that if you know the UK government decided to decriminalize cannabis on a on a mass front, they decriminalize and then be like, okay, well that's that's the job done. We don't have to legalize. It's not, um, you know, there's there's nothing more to do. We can kind of leave, leave it, uh, which is I think you know obviously a very dangerous position to be in because decriminalization it helps and it's a stepping stone, but it's not you know it it doesn't solve most of the kind of issues that that one has with the the illicit cannabis market yeah i mean it, i mean it, it is such a sort of fascinating uh, kind of area of discussion is that common sense tells you one thing political allegiance tells you something else and then the fear of of uh, of of a result might might make you to have another a different conclusion um so kind of like moving forward then what are the, some of the, the the tactics or what what is volt face sort of planning to do um, so kind of in, in the foreseeable future, I mean, we're going to continue to, um, I mean, we've, we've kind of got a couple, a number of different kind of work streams that we're looking towards, um, obviously kind of advancing the agenda for, for medical cannabis and continuing to advocate for, you know, um, patient access is definitely kind of on our agenda. Um, equally, I think it's really important that we kind of continue pushing for recreational um, cannabis uh, legalization. I think in in the European sector in general, medical cannabis is kind of a continued to be, you know, a point of discussion, kind of the expansion of the market and also uh, patients still not, you know, having, um, uh, not having access is obviously something that's kind of dominating the space. But I think in terms of the rec market um, or the potential recreational market, that's not something that's necessarily kind of being discussed on, on a European level and on a UK level. Um, so I think definitely kind of, um, focusing in on that and honing in on the kind of potential that has is definitely something on that's on the kind of Voltfast's um, Volt agenda. Um, and equally kind of looking looking toward the kind of psychedelic sector um, and continuing just to 
uh, I'd say reframe and reshape what cannabis looks and feels like. Um, a key thing um, that's kind of been going around in the cannabis sector is the whole idea of cannabis 2.0. Um, so taking, you know, what what's seen as this kind of dirty recreational drug and transforming it into, you know, something that's really sleek and cool and innovative um, and has, you know, cool design associated with it um, is something that, you know, we're really, we're really interested in kind of pushing forward and kind of disrupting the narrative with. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely something that I'm really interested in. I love the kind of cool innovations and designs that are taking place in the US and Canada. And I think um, bringing those and kind of making a bit of a narrative around that is, uh, is, is something that I'm quite interested in, uh, in doing over the next kind of couple, coming months. So the key into this is, is marketing. <laughs> if, it, if, it, if it gets marketed correctly, we can see that progression. Absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, mar I, I don't like to call it marketing, but kind of reframing and recontextualizing. Um, I think I think that is a key. And I think it's a key, especially for the kind of hard to reach, not hard to reach populations, the populations that aren't necessarily pro legalizing cannabis at the moment. Um, kind of as we as we were discussing earlier around the kind of CBD craze and movement. Um, I think that's like a a great example of how cannabis can be reframed as this like health and wellness product. Um, and it's worked really well for CBD. I mean, um, yeah, I think lots of people would have never kind of been on board with kind of cannabis, uh, technically cannabis oil being sold in boots in Holland and Barrett and, you know, nice little uh, containers. Um, I think we need to kind of take that and apply it to, to the kind of sector as a whole. Um, and I think that can be, that that can potentially be really really successful um it, this is called the bandwagon um and it is a play on words um so i i give this opportunity to uh, all my guests um is there something or a particular issue that you want to get clear off your chest and uh, or just jump on a bandwagon or actually jump off a bandwagon um uh, this is your opportunity <laughs> to do it um, a particular issue, just kind of in like in the drug policy space. Anyway, it can be, yeah, yeah, it could be anything, yeah. Um, I, let me think. I think, uh, I, I mean, we've kind of talked about this already at, at the beginning around kind of uh, the inception of VaultFast and kind of what VaultFast stands for as, um, as an organization. I think in general, what's just quite, um, what can be quite frustrating to around work in the drug policy sphere is this kind of, um, the fact that drugs are seen as this kind of moral issue and it's seen as this moral dilemma, which I think makes it extremely difficult to kind of move policies forward and bring bring about change. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, drug policy in general is traditionally and still is seen as a very kind of left-wing liberal issue um, and bringing on board that kind of change and reasoning to the kind of right-wing conservative governments uh, can be really difficult. Um, and I think, yeah, I just think that reframing that discussion and looking at frames that, you know, can bring on board right-wing um, right politicians and social conservatives uh, is, is, is extremely important. Um, and I think we have to kind of move away from that kind of emotion-focused emotion argument and more towards an evidence-based argument. Um, not, um, I've kind of lost my train of thought, but um, yeah, but basically kind of emotion, um, moving away and veering away from emotion, both from the left and the right wing um, kind of governments and more towards a kind of a reasoned approach. Um, and I think, you know, it's not, 
I don't think we need to kind of blame and kind of point fingers just at social conservatives and, uh, and, and kind of right-wing leaders. I think we equally need to look at where the left um, and the kind of liberal side of drug policy has failed and kind of moved toward kind of a centrist approach that can actually, um, that can actually bring about change. Um, that was a very kind of convoluted explanation, but <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I'm jumping no, on the bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's good. I mean, like, to be honest, like, I think for people who are kind of not new into this field or just or just listening into the for the first time, um, you know these these arguments and these policy this campaigning that have been going on for a while now, um, and and I think it's kind of um, it's kind of natural that organisations or individuals are kind of streamlining and pinpointing the arguments a lot more succinctly now. Social media is 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 a, is the best avenue to try and convince and get more people you know thinking that way uh, and, and I think the way that you've kind of exp uh, explained it quite elegantly there um you know put it put, puts it all together um no so it, it, you know I'd just like to thank you for taking the time out really to come uh, come on today and uh, and have this chat uh, I, I'm sure um as this kind of field uh, develops or or kind of the, the the responses that you know I'm getting is is really big and positive especially from people who kind of follow um, this this podcast uh, somehow um you know they, they want to learn more so i really like to thank you for that katya uh no my pleasure it's uh it's been great uh chatting to you and uh yeah thanks again so much for having me on today cheers thanks all the best When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.